The Internet of Things is the concept that traditionally analog objects like thermostats and light bulbs can be given digital guts and connected to the internet to create more value for users. From Nest thermostats to Philips Hue light bulbs, these connected devices are starting to enter the mainstream. According to recent estimates by Gartner, over 8 billion connected things will be in use in 2017, with that number ballooning to over 20 billion by 2020. Jeremy Foster is a technical evangelist at Microsoft and the host of Microsoft's Virtual Academy's Introduction to Azure IoT course. And in this episode, host Jared Porcinaluk joins Jeremy to discuss developing for the Internet of Things. We're looking to do more coverage of this space, the Internet of Things space, kind of an overloaded term, but if you've got a suggestion for a type of show to do in this space, I'd love to hear it. You can always send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thanks for listening. So Jeremy Foster is a senior technical evangelist with Microsoft and has created the Introduction to Azure IoT course on Microsoft Virtual Academy. Jeremy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the Internet of Things is a broad term and has many definitions by many people. What is your definition for the Internet of Things? Well, you're exactly right. There are so many definitions of it. It's an interesting term, and there are as many definitions, I think, as there are people involved in this field. My definition, I like to keep it simple, and I like to say that the Internet of Things is really just devices without screens. And I know that it's a lot more than that, but the reason why I say that is because we have, over the past few decades been creating devices that are a lot of different formats. There's tablets and PCs and TVs and phones and and everything, but most of them have an interface. They have a visual interface. They have a keyboard for people to type on. They have a screen to send information back to the user. And when you have all of that, I always say that you are, when you have a screen, you imply eyeballs. And when you have eyeballs, you strongly imply a human being. And with the Internet of Things, we just don't have that mapping to a person anymore, which is what's interesting about it is why it's kind of taking off and the devices are multiplying like rabbits because they're not tied to people anymore. You don't have to have a person attending the device and interacting with the device. It can be left on its own to just record the temperature every second or whatever. Yeah, definitely makes sense. I mean, when you don't have people involved at every step in the process, then, you know, things are talking to other things autonomously, then you can have as many of those things talking without the, you know, slow, you know, fleshy people in between. Yeah. Yeah. The meat space. Yeah. And then there's the two sides of it, the internet and the things, which I think is a good aspect of the name, the much loathed name IOT is the fact that it highlights that there's a cloud side of it and there's the device side of it. And we, tend to call the device side now I think the name that's sticking is the edge because it's so hard to pin down as well but we have this thing called the edge which is all the stuff that's happening locally and that's kind of the things and then there's the cloud which is everything that's happening happening at data centers around the world and that's the internet so why is the internet of things important why is it a big deal in your mind I think the reason why it's a big deal is because if you just think about compute, like that is we as humans, mostly the developers driven by the businesses, implementing logic, 
and then that logic being computed. In other words, not just measuring temperature, but doing something meaningful with that, looking for high temperatures, looking for low temperatures or whatever. If you think about compute, it's gotten very commoditized over the years to the point where it feels like, in, from one facet, it feels like we have eked out all productivity gains from compute, and yet that's not the case without increased granularity of measurement and, and really business insights that are more granular. So I like to use the example of a garbage truck collecting garbage in the morning and, and really just doing it blindly, just saying, this is what I do. I drive this route and these, you know, 50 dumpsters, I, I dump them and that's, that's what I do. Well, that business, in order to make it more productive, we have to look into the way that they do business and figure out where are their wastes. It's, it's usually more advantageous today for businesses to look for waste than it is for them to look for opportunities. And so that's why I think IoT is so important is because it's going to give us that chance to, to make gains in productivity that are really, really significant. And that's going to be like a major, major factor in economic growth and in technological advancement. So what's like, you gave the garbage truck example, and I know that Microsoft work with a lot of different people. What's the most significant real world application for IoT that is in the wild right now that you've seen? Boy, so I tend to work with a lot of partners and developers on proof of concepts, and I do a lot of demos and a lot of training, so I don't have a ton of visibility into the big industrial enterprise scale partnerships, but I know that they're there, and some of the big ones I get, they kind of trickle down to me, and I like to study them and use them for proof that IoT is a big deal and, and we're working hard in this area. Some of them are uh, Rolls-Royce, Johnson Controls, Thyssen Krupp. We've got some good examples with these companies where the companies have seen, like for instance, I know that Rolls-Royce is able to save 1% in fuel costs. That adds up to gigantic figures. And, and Thyssen Krupp, the, the company that does a lot of elevator elevator servicing and you know everything around elevators able to save 50% in downtime and you can just imagine what 50% savings in downtime does for their bottom line so there's some really good stories out there wow so one of the things about the internet of things is is that i've heard that it's a buzzword and the technology to create the internet of things has been around a long time well, a lot of the technology microsoft itself is you know, had a version of their operating system built for an embedded devices since the 90s. So yeah, right. what's changed? Why is IoT now becoming so popular? Well, that's a good question. I think it's the... I think it's the pervasiveness of devices now. You've got everybody and their uncle creating a new IoT device. And these devices are quite generic. You know, it's just an ARM processor usually with some general compute capability bridged to a, a microcontroller to control all these GPIO pins. And then the, the magic, in my opinion, is that these little devices have Wi-Fi and oftentimes Bluetooth built into them. So the communications are easy. And that unlocks new scenarios. I mean, it was 30 years ago I was studying in school how to you know, program a microcontroller to create what looks like the kind of the device side or the things side of an IoT solution. 
but it didn't have the connectivity and it also didn't have the ease of programming or the low cost points. Now, shoot, for $5 I can go get a Raspberry Pi Zero and I can do some pretty amazing things with full Wi-Fi capability, talking to the cloud, and, and it's only $5. So I think it's just the pervasiveness of these devices, as well as the fact that people have kind of been through a number of iterations of, of other types of interfaces. You know, we've been through websites and we've been through apps, and we're, we're not done with them, but they're no longer new. And we're looking for what's the what's the next best way to you know really do things right to really create some cool scenarios and we're kind of going back to this wow you know it's one thing to have a really cool app that does all kinds of fancy things on your phone but when you can light an LED up on your wall or give me a button that I can press or move some things around that's that's really cool like it's like computers are coming to that meat space right hmm. so. We've basically streamlined the ability to make apps and a lot of the use cases, you know, the big use cases have been taken care of. So right. the gains there are going to be a lot smaller. And then it's just, you know, the cost of a device is the ease of connection to the Internet and just being able to program on them in a much easier way than it used to be. It just sounds like a lot of a combination of a few factors that, that made that happen. Yeah, and, and actually, interestingly enough, whenever we get these new you know, revolutions in technology, like mobile, like IoT, like conversation as a platform, chatbots, and so on. Whenever we get these new things, solutions don't usually just kind of move from one to the other. But now, a lot of times when I create a solution, I'll create a, a collection of repos in GitHub. And one of them is the mobile app, and one is the cloud service, and one is the code that it's going to go to my IoT device. And another one might be my chatbot. And, and all these things get to work together. So it's nice because it's cumulative. We're accumulating strategies. We're accumulating the possibilities so that when somebody comes to us, whether it's the business or just a good hobby idea, whenever somebody comes and says, it would be really cool if we could do X, I can say, all right, let me pull from my grab bag, my repertoire of of possible technologies and let's do a little bot and a little IOT and a, and a mobile app and those can all work together in concert oftentimes in real time we can have like socket connections on all of those things live and and they can all work in concert which is pretty great that's awesome yeah one of the things that I think that I've seen change in development over the past few years is you know there used to be app developers and website developers and it seems like there's a convergence where you can take those skills and move them around a lot, which is a really great segue into my next question, which is, you know, I've seen a lot of software developers be interested in the Internet of Things, and maybe they've even bought a Raspberry Pi and didn't know what to do with it, stuck it in a drawer. So for those people who are, you know, interested but not quite sure how to get into it, what would you say is the easiest way to get started and what are some of the projects that you worked on when you first started getting into this space. Yeah. So the concepts in IoT are as diverse as the technologies and the, the, the IoT boards, the devices, and so on. So it, it does take a while to start to climb on top of all the concepts. You've got the concepts of the, the hardware protocols, the, the networking protocols, and the software protocols, the various languages that can be used and how those are facilitated on the various devices. And then you've got a whole huge array of sensors and 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 other components for the devices and so the concepts are really broad so i always tell people when you get started 
Just go online and search for a kit. Search on Adafruit or SparkFun. If you do a search for Azure IoT Starter Kits, that's a good way to go because we partner with Adafruit and, and SparkFun and some others to put together these kits that have everything in a little box that you need. The device, all the components, and most importantly, the instructions for putting it all together. And just go through the rote process of putting it together because in doing so, you'll learn what an ADC is. And then you'll say, oh, there's this thing called analog to digital conversion that's kind of necessary in IoT, and that concept will land in your head. And from that point forward, you'll know that anytime you're trying to get an analog signal, you can just use an ADC. But it was because you went through the rote process of putting together this project. You'll get familiar with all the different possibilities, like we've got sensors for measuring liquid levels inside of a container, sensors for measuring flex, sensors for measuring capacitive touch, sensors for measuring heat and light and and particle particulates in the air. I mean, there's just so many sensors. And when you go through these projects, you'll be introduced to some of those. And then those might be the spark that gives you an idea for your next project where you go, aha, I could totally use that to make something to detect how clean my air is and then use that to control my, my air purifier system. So it's good to just go through those rope processes. That's what I always recommend. And from that point, then you'll, start, you'll know like what roads to go down in your reading. You'll know to go do some research on this or that concept apart from the rote kits. Yeah, that's really good advice. Having it all in one box is nice. Yeah, that's very, very good to get a kit. I did not do that when I first started getting into this area, but there's been a proliferation of different kits out there, both, you know, different use cases. There's ones that are, you know, really small microcontrollers, and then there's, you know, full-fledged, might as well be a desktop, Mm -hmm. you know, so different, (laughs) different things you, you can get, but you can't go wrong. I don't think in, in doing that, just get started, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there you're right. There's everything from like the ESP eighty two sixty six and just minute little basically in my opinion, the value there is this Wi Fi plus a little tiny bit of compute and a little tiny bit of GPIO control, all the way up to I'm looking on my shelf here at a Jetson TX one by NVIDIA that, that NVIDIA that's capable of doing machine learning algorithm evaluation on the edge so on your robot you can process machine learning algorithms and stuff and there's everything in between so with all those options is there a specific kit that you would say like this is the one you should get this one and it will have everything someone who's never touched you know a piece of hardware that didn't have a screen attached to it and a keyboard like is there anything specific you would say yeah my recommendation yeah my recommendation for the device would be the raspberry pi 3 And the reason why is you can go a lot of different directions with that. There are devices that are made. There's some really cool ones by Electric Imp and Particle and and things like that that make, you know, it's like we're trying to make this process of getting a flashing light really easy. (laughs) And that's great, but once you climb over that, then that board is not, maybe not useful to you anymore. Maybe you reach the limit of what you're capable of doing with that board. But with the Raspberry Pi, it's really general. You can install a variety of operating systems. You can write using a variety of languages. And so you really have room to roam. But if you're following that strict kit, the strict guidance on on what kind of project to make, it'll walk you all the way through it. And if you're okay with just a little bit of complexity of an abstract device, 
a generalized device, then that's that's still going to be a good way to go. So I would start with that. The other thing I want to recommend is, and I just learned about this recently, Microsoft made something called MakeCode, which is like the easiest IDE in the world. You just go to makecode.com. And there are four devices plus a Minecraft capability that are built into MakeCode. And like one of them is the Circuit Playground Express, this little tiny round device with a ring of LEDs. And you don't even have to have the device. You just see it on the screen as a simulated device. And you can program using blocks or using JavaScript. And once you get it working the way you want, then you can basically just copy that to a device, plug it in over USB, works on any computer, and bam, it gets copied down to that device and all of a sudden you've made something. So that's a really cool way too, just because you need absolutely nothing before you get started with that. So as far as the software side of things goes for the Internet of Things, and especially you know Raspberry Pi 3, is there a specific programming language one would need to know in order to work with that? Or what kind of operating system would some someone put on that? So I think, well, the operating system that you would put on a Raspberry Pi 3 is likely either the Raspbian distribution of Linux or Windows 10 IoT Core. There are some other options, but those are predominantly your options. And there's strengths and weaknesses to both. I tend to use Raspbian more often still, but the Windows 10 IoT Core solution is actually really cool. It makes a lot of the process really easy. It's kind of hard still in in Linux for a, a beginner to figure out how to get started, as well as how to do simple things like set your the code that you wrote for your IoT solution as the startup application. You know, those are all like Linux concepts, and a lot of people are, are coming to this without necessarily having Linux administrative skills. And the Windows 10 IoT Core route makes a lot of that easier. It makes it so that you can just go to a web page that is the management portal for your device and you can see which apps are installed on the device and you can click on one and hit set default (laughs) and now all of a sudden whenever that device boots up that's the app that's going to run so that's exactly what what you want in many iot scenarios so that's that's what you're looking at for operating systems for languages we've got lots of choices which is good and bad you know some people just want to write python some people just want to write node.js and and other people always want to write low-level code like C. And the reality is that you can do any or all of those, but it is nice to find a language that you, and if you're in a development team, you and your whole team are really comfortable with and stick with that across the devices. I get frustrated whenever I'm having to write one language here and another language in the cloud and another language in, in mobile. I, I don't I don't like that very much. And in fact, I... I tend to choose JavaScript everywhere just because I get to write JavaScript talking to Azure and JavaScript on the device and JavaScript in my web app. And whenever I fetch uh, data from web services, it's in JSON format, which is practically JavaScript. And so that's that's my choices. But it really does come down to preference. Yeah. So it's kind of meeting you where you're at. So if you're a developer and you you have a certain language that you like, you can that's not going to be a barrier to entry. You don't have to write in C anymore I guess to write on so right now I mean I feel like the internet of things is a bit of a niche and what would be your pitch to software engineers to say we should probably learn this boy it's really important for software engineers to learn IOT it's it's one of these yeah it's not a niche it's not 
I always equate it to, I guess my example of a niche is game programming. Game programming is something that you don't have to learn. You can let all the game programmers, the guys that are passionate about game programming, handle that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you, mm -hmm. you would have, it would teach you a lot. All the, all the linear algebra and, and math and graphics and 3D would teach you a lot. That's great. But you can kind of leave that for the game developers. But IoT is an example of one of those technologies that you can't afford not to learn. There are a number of other examples, such as machine learning. They're really unavoidable. They're, they're what's coming down the pike and changing the way that we develop software. And it's, it's new patterns and paradigms that we have to learn. So with the advent of the cloud, we have to learn certain cloud paradigms that are, that are different or that, are, that augment all of the paradigms we've already learned in our computer science applications. And IoT is the same. You have to learn more paradigms. How do you build small messages? How do you filter data while it's streaming? How do you handle huge amounts of data? And all of those paradigms are really important because like I was saying, in any given solution now, there's a high likelihood that it will involve not only a website and a mobile app, but also some IoT and some machine learning and, and so on. So for those people who haven't yet got into it, how is developing for the Internet of Things, especially for hardware devices, not necessarily the cloud side, because I'm sure there's a lot of similarities, but how is developing for the hardware side different than, you know, what a typical app or web developer sees on a daily basis? Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's not all that different. You know, you're, you're creating business logic. In this case, I want to do this. But in this case, I want to do this 75 times or whatever. But one of the things that's unique about it is that you don't just have an assumption of a UI. Remember, I was saying that IoT is like devices without screens. Whenever you have screens, you use a UI language to show something on the screen and to capture when the user touches a button or drops down a list. But in IoT, you don't necessarily have that. Instead, you're reading values from sensors, from meat space. And so when the user touches a button or when they activate a capacitive button or when the temperature gets to a certain level, then something happens. So thankfully, it doesn't change that much. The implementation of your logic, in my opinion, doesn't change that much. And in a lot of ways, it gets easier because there's no longer like where exactly on the screen should I position this text box so that it conforms to good UX practices and you know doesn't fly off the right side of the screen and still kind of looks good? <laughs> you know, a lot of times you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, that's a good point. So with web apps, you know, I know we talked about software living on the device, but overall architecture with a web app, you know, you might have a database, the front end with the UI, and a, a server that does the logic in the back end. Yeah. What would be some architecture for a basic IoT solution? So that's a good question. What, what you described is kind of a classic N-tier architecture for something that has a web UI. Something that is an application, a kind of a typical application in IoT is probably much more distributed. In other words, it's not just happening in one place, but maybe it's an array of sensors, some of which are grouped together. The sensors are all reporting to the same device. And then maybe those are aggregated further. The devices are, some of them are not capable of talking to the internet. So they're talking to some field gateways 
which are receiving all the communications from the sensors from these devices. And so you can kind of see that we've got a bit of a tree architecture here physically, a physical topology. And then these devices that are capable of talking to internet and these field gateways are all connected to the cloud and they're reporting the results of what's going on in this, this installation. And so you've got client code on all or most of these devices. And maybe on some of them, you've got some high-level client code, like I tend to write in Node.js. And then in other devices, you don't have the ability to run Node.js, so you're running like a C program. But that, that represents all of your device logic. And device logic is part business logic and part just the, the busyness of the device logic is the talking to sensors. And there are very, like in the Node.js world, we have tools like Johnny5 and Cylon to abstract away that, that busyness, that plumbing. So hopefully what we're left with is kind of pure business logic. So you have to decide, like, where do I want that business logic to run? Is it here or is it in the cloud? So that's one tier is your device code. Now, those, that device code tends to result in a stream of data that goes to the cloud. And that, that stream of data takes us away from this classic end tier where I kind of have, you know, these three different tiers and, and I, I rise up and down that stack using that, that tier paradigm. It doesn't necessarily work that way now. We think more in streams of data. And so I have a stream of data. Think about, I always use the temperature example, but think about this stream of temperature data coming in. And then we, we fork off of that stream with another stream that says, well, it's interesting when this temperature is over 80, so let's modify that stream and, and make myself not actually modify it, kind of treat it like it's immutable. Let's branch off of it, though, with a stream of data points that are over 80. And now I can react to those, that stream of data points that's over 80 in the form of I need to raise an alert for somebody somewhere. So maybe that's when a notification goes to a mobile app or it goes to email or, or whatever. So I guess the answer is that the topology of your physical solution becomes a part of the of a typified architecture. And from there, the architecture tiers kind of go away into kind of a blended, a blended, more of a blended paradigm for, for the architecture. Gotcha. So rather than just, you know, having logic when someone clicks on something, you know where the, where the information's coming from, but it's going to be coming all the time. It's going to be, you know, periodically or as, a, like you said, a stream of data. Yeah. 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 Microsoft has Azure. Azure's IoT solution, the kind of the core of our IoT solution is IoT Hub. And Hub is like this one central place where all information comes. It's first of all, able to identify all your devices and make sure that all your communication is secure, which is really important. But then all the information comes into this one central place. And so I guess if you were if you were creating a, a logical diagram of the software architecture of a solution compared to the N-tier web solution that you brought up, it's less of a cake of layers and it's more of a star, you know? Mm. So... Just talking about those gateways, I know you. I heard you mention gateways, and I know you wrote an article about gateways actually on your website. Right. I'm sure that a lot of people are not familiar with that concept. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So gateways are just devices. They're really just devices, but they're devices who have a dedicated purpose, and that is to facilitate communication from other devices. So imagine I have a Raspberry Pi 
and three Arduinos in my solution. The Raspberry Pi, I can hook directly up to Azure IoT Hub, and it'll just communicate with the cloud directly. It's uh, kind of self-advocating. But the three Arduinos, they're not capable um, inherently, possibly. I mean, they, they are, but let's, let's say in our application, we are not wanting to talk directly to IoT Hub with those Arduinos. So we bring another Raspberry Pi in, and we give it the role of gateway. And we would call that a field gateway, because there's also the concept of a gateway in the cloud. But the ones that are on location, like in your factory or in your, in your robot or whatever, those ones we call field gateways. And their job is to act as a proxy for these devices that are not capable or that we choose not to talk directly to the cloud. So that gateway role is a real unique one. Anytime you are working on your own solution and you say, I need a gateway, that implies I have to create some custom software. I have to create a bunch of custom logic. And so what Microsoft made is what is called currently the Gateway SDK, but what we announced is evolving into Azure IoT Edge. And that is a library that allows you to implement that logic on the client side, on the Edge, using a, a modular pattern that's really cool. It allows me to like imagine that the data is coming in from these three Arduinos and there are a few steps, a few things that we need to do to that data. We need to kind of sweeten it and filter it and maybe filter out some of it and maybe transform some of the data and then send it to IoT Hub. And this gateway SDK or now Azure IoT Edge is makes it, it makes it possible for you to do that in kind of a standard way. But what you still want to do is even though these three Arduinos are going through a gateway, you don't want Azure IoT Hub to just see the Raspberry Pi, you kind of want to pass through the identity of these Arduinos, still register those as devices, because in fact they are, and kind of pass through that identity so that virtually you're getting messages from three Arduinos, not just from one Raspberry Pi. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I actually didn't know that about the device identity being passed through the gateway, so I learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But but speaking of those three Arduinos, so a lot of times when I hear about IoT, I hear about hundreds or thousands of deployed devices. And you mentioned some of the companies that Microsoft has worked with. I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but one of those companies I know is Rockwell Automation, who right. does a lot with you know oil rigs. And something I've heard about oil rigs is they're basically floating cities. They're you know people working on it. You need a medic area and a food cord and there's all these pipes going everywhere and I know that one of the things that Microsoft work with Rockwell Automation on is being predictive about when things were going to fail and so with these hundreds or thousands of devices like who's responsible who's putting those out there who's maintaining them who's configuring them like how does that work for yeah. You know, as a developer's perspective, I'm not familiar with that side as much, but I know that it's important if we're going to, you know, get IoT implemented, we need to have that part. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it, right? We call it a fleet. You know, you've got this fleet of devices that you have to manage and it can become an absolute headache to have, you mentioned thousands and sometimes it's millions of devices. In Azure, Azure IoT Hub, you can register literally millions of devices in one hub. But then just try working with all of those devices and figuring out, you know, what the health of each of them is and what, what's the version of the firmware and are any of them, you know, fried? Have they been overheated or are there problems with them? 
And so there's this kind of fleet management that we have to do that's a significant consideration. In fact, there is going to be an operations team, that a field team that's running around working with physical electrons, these physical devices in various installations, because like I said, somebody has to do that. But if all of these devices, either on their own or through a gateway, are communicating with the cloud, then we can use some device management capabilities of Azure IoT Hub to make it much, much easier to get an overall view of this fleet. Let's just say you have a million devices. You're on an oil rig, and I don't don't know why, but you've got a million devices. Maybe you've got a whole bunch of oil rigs, and you've got a million devices, some of which are really small. They're just a temperature sensor, others of which are more robust, but you've got a million of them. Well, you can ask questions through things called queries, device queries, of your fleet of devices and say, okay, I'm interested in all of the devices on a certain oil rig and I just want to see what their firmware version is. And so you can ask that question and get that answer back as to the current firmware of those, all of those devices. And you don't actually have to, in that query process, go down to the devices and ask them what their firmware version is, but rather all of those devices on that oil rig are going to be kept in sync with a twin of those devices in the cloud. And so when you do a query like that, you're really just asking this fleet of twins in device management in Azure IoT Hub, hey, what's the current firmware of all of the devices on this oil rig? And you get your answer back. And that's great because you can say, okay, for all of the ones that are not currently, you know, active or or they're not currently doing business, let's go ahead and update their firmware so you can call a job that executes a method to update the firmware on all of those devices. And let's just say it's 100 devices that need to have their firmware updated. And then you can check in with that job and say, how's it going? And it'll let you know that you know half of them have been done and half of them are still in process. They've got to do this. They've got to reboot. They've got to do all kinds of things before they're back up with their new firmware. And as soon as they come back up with their new firmware, they'll report into these device twins in the cloud and say, I'm now at firmware version 3. And when you go do another query and look at this fleet of devices, you're going to have all your devices updated to the latest firmware. So it's kind of a combination of people in the field have to go do things, but the things that they used to have to do by you know physically plugging into a device and checking its firmware, we can make that much, much easier. And now we can let them sit at a desk and administer it or even administer it with some business logic. So basically, the deployment is you know technician's job, but it's a one-time deal. They don't have to go back and update firmware and plug stuff in. So that's ideally, yep. If designed and implemented correctly, that's exactly right. So are there developers right now who specialize in IoT? Oh yes, absolutely. There are developers who that's their vertical and they've been doing it for a long time. And if they've been doing it for, for a long time, then they have been on quite a quite a character arc and a trajectory in their careers, right? Because they were doing IoT before it was popular. They were doing IoT in a lot of forms and they're still doing it. And and a a select few of them are really embracing the new paradigms in IoT and doing more abstract, more general patterns. So are we going to see more developers like adopt the I'm an IoT developer title or will it be, you know, developers in their day-to-day life are going to interact with IoT projects and then maybe they'll go do a web app and come back to IoT at some other future project. I think we'll see a number of developers that are advertising that their specialty is IoT. They might they might and sometimes already call it an embedded specialty. 
developers who have the experience with some software and some hardware. In fact, when I went to school a long time ago, I chose the, the degree of computer engineering because computer science is kind of software specific and electronics engineering is very hardware specific and I loved the marriage of those two concepts and so that's really what IOT captures is that ability to do both of them I wanna I wanna write some software but I want that to get flashed onto an EEPROM and run in a hardware solution in a tangible hands-on solution and I think that there are already and will continue to be developers who specialize in that we've talked about software developers getting into it and starting with starter kits. And we just talked about developers who have been in the field for years, embedded. In between, I feel like I'm someone who's in between. I'm interested in IoT. I understand a lot of the mechanics and and how it all works. And I would like to do more IoT projects, but I feel like identifying opportunities, whether that's with clients that the company I work for has, or for developers that work in an organization and provide solutions within that organization, just identifying opportunities for IoT. How does one do that? Is that a developer's role? And if so, you know, how do we push for more IoT projects? So I think that if you're in an enterprise where you're not currently doing IoT, it's not your main thing, you're in marine services or insurance or whatever, one of the things that you can do is you can look for opportunities to transform your business in the field of IoT and, and maybe help be a leader in your business in bringing IoT opportunities to the forefront and defining how they will change the business, how they'll increase productivity, how they'll, they'll cut uh, spending or, or wasteful, uh, wasteful things. So that's one way you can do it. You can also get involved in a industry category that is specifically IoT or contains large amounts of IoT. Well, you know, so that kind of implies a, a job change, perhaps, and that may or may not be something that you want to do. But those are two ways to do it. And then you can also just seek IoT projects in kind of in the open source space or the hobby space. There is so much going on in that space. If you Look around, if you're near a significant metro, if you look on Meetup, you'll probably find a number of IoT or maker-related groups. I know in my area there's one that's all volunteer-based, and it's a group of folks that have a really excellent collection of maker tools. And there are people there that are talking about making things physically, and people that are talking about now plugging in electronics to automate it. And then still others that are talking about now communicating with the cloud to open up full-on IoT scenarios. And so there's tons to learn in that space, in that hobby space. And then whether or not you choose to get yourself into an, an enterprise situation where you're actually working there, that's up to you. That makes a lot of sense. Meetup, definitely a big fan of, yeah, of finding what you're interested in through that. So one of the things that crops up again and again, especially with physical devices is security. What do you think some top security considerations are that all developers should be following if they get in, into this space? Yeah, boy, security is a huge topic in IoT. And I think it's because these devices are, are going to be, once again, unmapped from humans. So they're gonna be pervasive. They're gonna be all over the place. And you know, to the degree that they are standardized, that, you know, that's, that tends to be good and by that I mean they're using standard protocols and standard communication means and so on that's good but it's also a, a major attack factor you know there have been 
you know how in in the web there are lots of attacks on things like WordPress because if you know how to hack a WordPress website you know how to hack a lot of websites and if you can find an attack vector into WordPress then that just you know gives you as a as a black hat hacker a lot of opportunity and likewise if you know how to break into a Bluetooth system and you know how the standard protocols work then you've got devices all around you that are talking Bluetooth, you know, and, and it's going to be increasingly more so. And so you've, we've all heard stories of people able to kind of hack into a printer and cause it to self-destruct or hack into mm. a sprinkler system and cause it to get triggered. And, and those security concerns are, are only going to increase. And I don't think it means that we move away f- from standards. That's really just security by obfuscation. What it means is that we create and adhere to good encryption paradigms so that all communications are following good encryption paradigms. And, and so when you're talking to the cloud and other devices, you just make sure that you spend the extra compute to encrypt all of your messages in transit. When you're using Azure IoT, you're forced into that. You have to send secure messages. So you can't send clear text messaging up to the cloud. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be security as it's always been, and in some ways, new types of security in the IoT space. Mm. So, in conjunction with security, privacy is also a big concern. In the same vein, when developing for the Internet of Things, are there privacy considerations that are special for this space? I don't know if they're special. There, there may be more privacy because the devices not, are not only more pervasive, they're also more personal. We have a fitness tracker on our wrist and we have a sleep tracker in our bed with us. And, you know, we're, we're reading biometric data and we're reading data about where we are and what we do in life. And that's all much more personal data. So the idea of personally identifying data being recorded and possibly breached or shared is is more of a concern because it's more personal data. But the considerations, I think, are much the same, and the remediations are, in many ways, much the same. It's just a matter of, of good practice, encrypting the data in transport, storing it if it's in a multi-tenant architecture, storing it in safe ways, and communicating well with all tenants what, the, what, your, what your business is consideration of personal data is what your your policy is and then where necessary anonymizing data you know there's there's the possibility of of gigantic amounts of iot data in things like in applications like cars i i wasn't aware until i i had a conversation a while back that you know almost any car that you buy these days has a cell chip in it and is communicating data about the driving of that car back to the company Really? And that Yeah, and that instantly sounds like, wait, what? That's a breach of my privacy. But it's anonymized, and so somehow that gets through all of the regulations. It's okay because the way this car is being used is anonymized. It's not tied to you. And so it's somehow a right of this car manufacturer to capture that kind of data. And, and in fact, it, even if at first it makes the hair on the back of our necks stand up, we have to recognize that... This kind of data is hugely valuable, not just in allowing a company to monetize well, but in allowing a company to produce products that we want to buy and produce them in ways that you know actually fit the scenarios. And so it's it is. I mean, I tend to 
be okay with letting companies collect anonymous data because I want them to be able to make their services better. You know, we all want them to, to make good services, but I want them to communicate well with me. I don't want that to be something that is hidden to most people. I want that to be well communicated. The way you drive is being reported just anonymously. Yes. And, you know, I think that when any new technology comes along or perceived new technology like IoT, I mean, there's always, you know, a big focus on a lot of the same issues that are existent in other places but have been there for a long time. So, right. you know, having a cell phone in your in your pocket when that when those first came out and you know, everybody started getting them, that privacy was a big consideration for those, but now I think that it's it's talked about less. I mean, the the issue is still there and we still need to be cognizant of it, but you know, we don't talk about it quite as much. Right. Yeah, one thing that we miss sometimes is the fact that those cell phones in your pocket are in fact IoT devices and the PCs on your desk are in fact IoT devices. IoT is is inclusive. It's it's all the devices. So it's the Raspberry Pi, but it's also all of these classic devices. So these devices that you said that you created that are proof of concept, like what would be the difference between proof of concept, you throw it together, it works, and something that we can say, you know, here, we'll put it out there in the field and rely on this. Is there yeah. certain steps we need to take to get from point A to point B? Yeah, I think there's a lot of business decisions that need to be made that in order to try to make those in a proof of concept is really just a waste of cycles because you want to prove out the case, see if you can, if you, the technology will support this scenario. I'll give you an example. So I was working on one project that was a rowing machine that I have. It's called Water Rower, and I love the company, and I love my, my water rower. And I realized that on the back of the monitor, the electronic monitor that comes on the water rower is a serial port. And I can plug into that serial port and capture all of the data about my rowing session as I row live. So I made an application, an IoT application, whereby I can put it on a Raspberry Pi, plug that Raspberry Pi into the back of the monitor, and then I have an always-on scenario. I don't have to you know, get out a mobile device and connect with Bluetooth and then start an app and all of that. Rather, I just have a little device that's constantly, constantly watching that rower. And as soon as I pick up the handle and start pulling on it, it says, oh, hey, this must be the start of a rowing session. And it unlocks all these scenarios because I can create an app that collaborates with other rowers around the world it doesn't matter where we're at. All of the, the data is going through a web service. And then I can create these visuals where I can see my boat rowing across the screen and the boats of the people that I'm rowing with or racing against. So I worked with one partner where they wanted to create a, a group fitness studio where maybe a dozen rowers are in the room and there's one person in the front and they've got a screen up on the wall and these dozen rowers can see their progress throughout the day and you can do interesting things like let's let's create a phantom boat that represents our average speed from yesterday and let's race him and so now everybody in the room is racing their best from yesterday and trying to beat that as a group and that just un that unlocks a whole new kind of way of working out it's like we're competing but we're on the same team we're trying to beat us from yesterday and so there's all kinds of fun things that you can do there. Well, as a proof of concept, all we really need to do is create one room of 12 rowers and have one web service and we can all just communicate over WebSockets. But if this thing turns into a really big solution, then we're, we might envision having hundreds or thousands of these rowers around the world someday. 
and all of this data you don't want to you don't want to make these studios set up their own servers and such so we want all this data coming into one location and now we've got a multi-tenant environment and we need to re-architect our application to handle that multi-tenant environment so that would be the difference between it as a proof of concept and it as a production application so you said the multi-tenant environment and that kind of reminded me microsoft recently announced but didn't provide a lot of in-depth information about something called microsoft i believe iot central is that anything that you can talk about i saw it advertised as the SaaS solution for iot no, that's, that's probably nothing that I can talk about right now. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, I thought as much, but I had to ask. Yeah. So I was going to ask what kind of IoT projects you're currently working on at Microsoft, but you gave me an example. Are there any others that you're currently involved with? There's one I'm really excited about right now. So the latest announcements from Microsoft on in the IoT front, in the Azure IoT front, is this Azure IoT Edge that I was talking about. And the, the nice thing there is the ability to kind of move your computation back and forth between the cloud because it's using containers. And it allows you to say, you know, there's certain things I want to happen on the edge because I don't want to incur the costs of sending things to the cloud. You know, oftentimes we're collecting all this data and then, t you know, maybe 90% of the data is just useless. We just want to drop it on the floor or we want to analyze it on the edge and figure out if it's interesting to send to the cloud and store in cloud storage or whatever. And so my wife and I, we recently bought a boat and my goal is to install a Raspberry Pi in the boat that is like an edge server and is essentially tapping into the existing network of devices that are on a boat. They use a standard called NMIA, NMIA 0183 and NMIA 2000. And there's a device for tapping into that network and turning all of that NMIA data about your heading and there's wind speed and the wind direction and the RPMs of your engine and GPS location. All that stuff is on this NMIA network and can be kind of digitized I guess it's already digitized but it can be modernized by turning it into a JSON web service and then I can I can take that data and I can do some interesting stuff on the edge with it and some of it I can send to the cloud and now I can visualize all these different aspects of my boat so that's the project that I'm currently really excited about that's awesome boat related I heard of a use case where somebody had a Raspberry Pi in their boat or some sort of device in their boat and it had one job, and the job was to turn a fan on when the humidity got too high to <laughs> reduce the potential for mold. And I was like, wow, that is a that is a so simple, but you know, potentially saving you hundreds or thousands of dollars, or at least annoyance of walking into a musty boat. And I was just, you know, it's things like that, like the rowing machines in the boat that, you know, I don't interact with rowing machines or boats necessarily on a daily basis, but there's just so many use cases that are applicable to so many people. Well, Jared, that's a, actually a super good idea because, you know, not because you couldn't dehumidify your boat anyway, but because your only option when you leave your boat is to turn a dehumidifier on constantly. And so if you can get that humidity level down to a certain level and then programmatically turn off the dehumidifier, you can, you know, save a lot in costs. A lot of these most of the marinas will meter your use of electricity and you pay for it. Mm. So you might, you might be able to add up just exactly how much you'll save by implementing that. It's a great idea. All right, well, let's do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Florida. You're in the right yeah, place for it, that's right? That's true. 
Exactly. So we're coming to the end of the interview and I really appreciate your time, but I wanted to ask just a few generalized questions to kind of make sure you have some space to give what information you wanted to give. So what would be some blanket statements about making IoT? Things that may be important to you, whether that's projects coming up that you have that you'd like to share, resources that you didn't mention that you'd like to, or just generalized advice. I think that some blanket statements. Let me think. Well, there's a, there are a lot of resources out there, but because it's a broad and diverse topic, sometimes it's hard to just find the resources. So I'll reiterate what I said before. Start with one of those starter kits that walks you through it. Definitely know about Hackster.io. That's a, a really good online community for getting started with IoT. That's Hackster.io. Follow me on Twitter and check out CodeFoster.com because this is one of my focus areas in my evangelism efforts at Microsoft, and so I like to talk about IoT as much as I can, so you might be able to hear from me there. Definitely go to the documentation for Azure IoT. Just search for Azure IoT, and you'll find a really good landing page for it and get some good documentation on the general services. And some of that documentation is specific, but a lot of it is real general. And it really, at the end of the day, might not end up mattering what cloud service provider you're, you're going to go with. You can just look at some of the general concepts in Azure's documentation and learn a ton about what IoT solutions look like when they incorporate cloud provision. So those are a few. And then don't miss meetup.com and your local IoT or maker communities. That's a really good way not only to learn stuff, because you can learn stuff online, but to connect with other people that are passionate about this. I think that we should be community-oriented developers. We learn a lot in community and by sharing our passions and, and capturing the passions of other people and then working together on projects. And then if you are like me, if, if you create an open-source IoT project, you are loving the idea of other people jumping in on that. So if you want to create your own, great, but if you want to join another one, you know, you can go to Water Rower on NPM or, or search for Water Rower on GitHub, and I have a an open source package for that rower I was talking about. And man, you're welcome to try it out and see how it can be improved and issue pull requests. And if you want to work on some other libraries, I'm sure the authors are just like me and would love to have the help, and then you'd learn a lot in the process. So that's what I've got there. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of good information. You know, knowing where to start is half the battle. So knowing that Azure has a lot of good resources, knowing you can use those starter kits and having some, you know, examples like your rower example of practical things that are also accessible and could be done by one or two people to start is is a really good starting point for people. And I think that yeah. that's what we're a lot of developers are at is, is just the starting point. I know there's a lot of people who are involved deeply as well, but I'm, I think that there's a lot of people who are just on the cusp of getting in, into it. Right. Yeah. And also don't miss microsoftvirtualacademy.com. That's where that course that you mentioned that I did was. And we're starting to pile in the IoT stuff into Microsoft Virtual Academy. So there's some good learning there. Well, that's, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. And we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. It was nice talking with you, Jared.